I'm turning to the New Testament scriptures, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. We'll begin our reading at verse 27, one that was crippled, that was let down through the ceiling, not only healing his body, but forgiving his sins. And upon seeing that, the crowds said, we have seen strange things or remarkable things today. And that brings us then to verse 27. Let us hear God's holy word. And after that, he went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and rose up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax gatherers and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call righteous men, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast. While the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come. And when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says the old is good enough. Jesus was constantly turning conventional religion on its head. We have seen strange things today. That was the response of the crowd that had witnessed Jesus healing that cripple and forgiving his sins. But my guess is those words were uttered more than once by those that had seen what Christ had done. My guess is that those words were uttered more than once by those that heard the remarkable teachings of the Lord Jesus. And though the religion of Jesus was the religion of the Old Testament, the official teachers of the Old Testament had so formalized, they had so externalized, they had so perverted the Old Testament that they could not see the Christ of God that was in their very midst. How tragic it is when religion 
obscures the way to Jesus. But it's still true that Jesus and biblical Christianity is out of sorts with this world. Biblical Christianity turns conventional religion upside down. This world is no friend of grace. And I say Christianity seems to be so contrary to everything that there is in this world. But the emphasis of the text before us today focuses upon the newness of life that there is in Christ. The old life with all of its mindset is incompatible to the new life that there is in Christ. And that's what I want us to learn today as we consider this teaching of Jesus and his behavior that confounded his critics and indeed even some of his sympathizers as he associated himself freely with sinners and he neglected what appeared to be the devout practices of religion. But his feasting with Levi, the tax collector, his feasting with Levi became the occasion to have a question about fasting. And that question about fasting gave the Lord Jesus then the occasion to highlight three truths about the newness of life in him. Jesus was the master teacher. So often he would look at the circumstances that were immediately surrounding him. Or he would look at the analogies from different things in life and draw spiritual lessons and expect the people to learn those spiritual lessons by looking at this, look at this, and get the point. And that really is how I want to address the text before us today. I want to make the proposition that Jesus is making. Look at the picture that he gives, and then let us learn the point that he wants us to understand. The first lesson is this, that a relationship with Christ is more important than religion. A relationship with Christ is more important than religion. And the sad thing is that Christless religion is possible. And Jesus is teaching us here that true fellowship and true joy is only going to be found in relationship to him. Now let's look at the picture. How come? The Pharisees are saying, how come? You're feasting when we're fasting. Why is it that your disciples and you are feasting? Now that raises the question. This is the picture then that Christ is giving. Indeed, fasting was a most religious exercise. A little background here. You recall that in the Old Testament that the Lord had given to the people as object lessons various feast days. There was the Passover, and there was Pentecost, and there was the Feast of Tabernacles, different feast days that were designed to point to spiritual truths designed to point to spiritual realities, all looking to the coming of the Lord Jesus himself. But there was only one fast day that the Lord had commanded his people to perform, and that was the Day of Atonement. 
The Day of Atonement was to be a day, a Sabbath day, in which they were to afflict their souls, not to punish the body. The fasting was not to deprive the body. It was not to punish the soul, but it was a time for reflection, a time when everything else was to be set aside. And on that Day of Atonement, their minds and their hearts were directed to that great drama of redemption that was being played out before them, but all pointing to the atoning work of the Lord Jesus. So I say in the Old Testament, there was only one fast day that was ordered and commanded by God. On other occasions that the Lord would allow in repentance, fasting was a part of that, but it was interesting that in the history of Israel, there were times when they proliferated fast days to celebrate or to commemorate certain things that the Lord never commanded. There was a fast that they celebrated at the end of the Babylonian captivity, commemorating the fall of Jerusalem. God never commanded that, and they wondered whether it should continue once the temple was rebuilt. So over and again that happens. But the Pharisees, by the time we come to the New Testament, by the time we come now to this relationship with the Lord Jesus is there in the midst of his creation. The Pharisees had established the principle, the practice, of fasting twice in the week. Luke tells us that a bit later. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if the very moment that the Pharisees were fasting, Jesus was feasting, and it bothered them. How come? How come? By the time we come even to the epistles, it demonstrates how man can take. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with fasting. There is a place for fasting, as we'll see in the text. But it's a tragedy how men can take the very best of religious practices and turn them into nothing but perfunctory rituals without any reference to the Lord Jesus himself. And even by the time we come to the ministry of Paul. Paul is speaking in Romans 14 about those that were judging people's, other people's spirituality on the basis of what day of the week they fasted. Same thing in Colossians chapter 2. An interesting document that we have called the Didache. It's the first book of church order or church manual, if you will. It dates to A.D. 100, just at the very end of the close of the New Testament canon. We have this writing called the Didache, the teaching. And there's a chapter in the Didache that deals with the issue of fasting. And it gives the instruction that you are not to be hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites when they fast. Don't be like the hypocrites. They fast, the hypocrites. They fast on Mondays and Thursdays. You don't be like them. You, you fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. And that was the way they made the distinction looking at someone's spirituality on the basis of what day of the week they fasted, had simply reduced this to just a religious performance. And I say man can take the very best of means and turn them into a worthless end. And any practice, any religious performance that is done without reference to Jesus indeed is a worthless folly. Now, that led to the analogy, the picture that Christ gave. You can't make 
come to the wedding. Here's a wedding, a wedding celebration. And you can't make the attendance to the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is present. The weddings were time for joy. The weddings were time for celebration. The weddings were not time for fasting and for grief and for that kind of deprivation. Happy times. That's the picture. Look at a wedding. Weddings are happy times. But here's the point then. Here's the point that Christ was making by this analogy of the wedding celebration. Christ obviously is the bridegroom in this analogy. His people are the bridegrooms. A consciousness, and here's the great truth, that it is a consciousness of the presence of Jesus that is the true joy in the life and the heart of a believer. The consciousness of the presence of Christ with his people is reason for joy. To be in his presence, To experience that personal relationship with Christ is something that religion by itself cannot achieve. And that's the issue that comes before us. As we gather together, as we come to worship Lord's Day after Lord's Day, is the felt presence of Christ, is the felt presence of Christ a joy? Or can we be content? Without it. You remember that scene in Revelation? Have those messages to the seven churches. And you come to Laodicea, the last of those churches. It's a church that's described as being prosperous, a church that is described as being orthodox. It was rich, it was orthodox, and a picture there of what they were doing. It would have been what appeared to be an ideal church. But you have that tragic scene, and I think it's perhaps the saddest scene that we have almost anywhere in the scripture of the Lord Jesus. I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will open up, I'll come in and we'll sup together, we'll dine together, we'll fellowship together. But just open up, open the door. And I'll come in. What a terrible description of that Laodicean church. On the inside, they were orthodox. On the inside, they were doing everything right. Their form of worship was spot on. And they were carrying all that ritual on. And Jesus was on the outside knocking to get in. And they didn't even know he wasn't there. How tragic that is. And may that never be the case. Oh, our churches can be orthodox. Our churches can be reformed. Our churches can follow the regulative principle and we can be tit for tat as conservative and orthodox as we possibly can be. And yet just go through the motions. Just go through the motions. Oh, we can guard the table and we can come to the table How do you come to the table? Is the consciousness of the presence of Christ your joy? Or can we be content without it? 
Can we be content just coming to church when the doors are open, going through the ritual and sabbing our conscience? Yeah, we, we've gone to church. We've fulfilled our duty. Everything is, everything is good. It's the hard issue. Is the felt presence of Christ your joy? And religion, the best of religion, the most orthodox of religion, is emptiness without the Lord. So in this analogy, that's the first lesson, that it's the consciousness of the presence of Christ that is joy. It is the awareness of the missing of Christ that is sorrow. How can the sons of the bride chamber grieve fast? When the bridegroom is there, I can't. But the days will come. There are going to be seasons when we are conscious of the missing of Christ. Oh, they'll fast in those days. There'll be a time in those days to afflict the soul, as it were. To come again to focus upon the work of Christ, upon the atonement of Christ that desire that ought to be in our hearts for the very presence of Christ. Oh, there are times. There are going to be seasons of life when, for whatever reasons, we are not conscious. We're not experiencing. But that ought to drive us. That is what ought to drive us then to, if you will, using the biblical terminology, to afflict the soul. To search and to seek, believing, believing then the promise that he gives to us, that if we seek him with all of our hearts, he'll be found of us. God is not playing games with us. God does not say, come and meet with me, and then we go there and he's not present. We know where we can meet with the Lord. We know that we can meet him at the cross. We know that we can meet him in the place of prayer. We know that we can meet him at that place of consecration. Get to be where he is. But that's the first lesson that Christ would have us to learn. That a relationship with him is more important than just the performance of religion. But here's the second. Here's the second lesson. A relationship with Christ this newness of life in Christ demands the renunciation of the old life. It demands the renunciation of the old life. And now at this point, the Lord Jesus comes and he speaks in parables. A parable is another analogy. The wedding situation was something that was there in life. Now look at that. Now in a parable, Christ again is taking something that is common in the experience of life and he's saying look at this look at this to learn this and he gives here three different parables three different parables the parable of the patch the parable of the new wine and the parable of the old wine let me explain how I'm going to handle these three Parables, and then we'll look at the picture and get the point. You'll notice, you'll notice at verse 
36, the no one statement. No one takes a piece from a new garment. Notice in verse 37, no one, another reference to no one. And then in verse 39, no one. So you have the no man or the no one statements three times. But also notice that in verse 36, following that no man statement, you have the word otherwise. In verse 37, after the no one statement, you have the word otherwise. In the final no man statement, there is no otherwise. So two of these parables are linked together and the other is a lesson all by itself. So in my analogy here, we're going to be looking at those first two parables, making this point that a relationship with Christ, this newness of life with Christ, demands the renunciation of the old life. Picture here of tragic mixtures. Now the first picture. Nobody, nobody puts a new patch on an old garment. Simple enough. Nobody puts a new patch on an old garment. Back in my day, when I was a child, if I got a hole, if I got a rip in my blue jeans, my mother would put a patch to cover that hole. It's amazing to me now that you can buy jeans with holes already in them. Makes no sense to me. But back in the day, back in the day, if there was a hole in my pants, my mother would put a patch on it. There came a time also then when they, this was part of the evolution of patches, I guess, in my day, uh, it, it, it transitioned to ironing. You could iron a patch on. And she thought this was easier. She put that iron-on patch on. But those iron-on patches weren't always as good. Because when the pants were washed, then they would... And that's what Christ is saying here. Nobody takes a new piece of garment and makes a patch out of it on an old garment. The old garment has already gone through the shrinking process. And you put a new piece of cloth on it. When it's washed the next time and it goes through the shrinking process now, as that new piece shrinks, the old has already shrunken and it's going to tear apart and you've got a worse hole than you had to begin with. A very simple picture. Christ is saying this is common sense. This is common sense. Nobody does that. Nobody takes a new piece of cloth, making a patch out of it on an old piece. Because when the shrinking takes place, the next wash, it may look okay for a while. It may look okay for a while, but it will not last. Now that's the first picture. The second picture is nobody takes new wine and puts that new wine into old wineskins. These wineskins are referring to Primarily to goat skins that were partially tanned. Those goat skins that were sewn together to form a bottle, a container for liquids. And as time went on, as usage went on, those skins would lose their elasticity. They would become brittle. And Christ is saying, now look, 
Nobody. Nobody is going to put new wine into those old skins. The old skins have become brittle. The old skins are no longer having the ability to expand. And you put the new wine in there, and when that wine begins to do whatever wine does in the fermenting process, it's going to expand, and it's going to bust those skins, and you're going to have a, you lose the wine, and you lose the skins. Nobody does that. It's common sense, Jesus says, that you don't do that. You don't put, you don't put the new wine into old skins. Now, we put these two things together. What's the lesson? Some things just don't mix. Some things just don't go together. A new patch doesn't go on the old garment. The new wine doesn't go in an old skin. Some things just don't mix together. Now the point is this. And the unhappy thing is that this is often viewed as a dispensational statement where the Old Testament is being set aside or the New Testament has nothing to do with a transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but rather Christ is coming here to the very heart and the very essence of the gospel. Christ is not, and Christ will not, be simply an add-on to the old life. Christ is not simply a means of patching up the old life. The presence of Christ, this newness of life in Christ, is absolutely incompatible with the old life. And here's the folly. Here's the folly of trying to mix spiritual things with carnal things. To be in Christ is to be a new creation. Old things passed away, and all things have become new. Faith toward God is repentance from sin, forsaking of the old, and returning to God. I say this is not a setting aside of the Old Testament, but it demands the setting aside or the renunciation of the old life. The old life and the new life don't go together. And the newness of life in Christ, therefore, requires, it demands, the setting aside of the old life. You travel sometimes. I've seen this in various places. Driving on the road, there's a billboard. And on the billboard it says, Christ is the answer. Christ is the answer. Well, he is, but I often wonder, you know, what's the question? What is it that Christ is the answer to? And we live in a day where Christ is viewed as the answer to this or that little problem. You have financial problems? Well, take a little Jesus, like a pill. You take a little Jesus, and he'll fix your financial problems. You have family problems? Take a little Jesus, and he'll fix your family problems. You have this problem? Take, just take a little Jesus, and he'll fix your problem. Christ is saying, I'm not a patch. I'm not a patch that you just put on to fix a symptom of this, that, or the other. Christ commands all of life. He commands all of life. True Christianity 
does not peacefully coexist with the sinful nature. True Christianity does not peacefully coexist with the old life. All things passed away. New creatures in Christ Jesus. Repentance now becomes a way of life turning our backs toward the old world, turning our backs toward sin, and now walking with our faces toward the Lord. That's the way of life. That's the way of life. The newness of life in Christ requires the renunciation of the old life. And the last lesson is this. That the newness of life in Christ, a relationship with Christ, requires a new nature. A relationship with Christ requires a new nature. This is the last of the no man analogies. Very simple, but yet a very far-reaching conclusion. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says the old is good enough. Some translations say the old is better. The old is better. Here's the picture. Here's the picture. No one, no one who is used to the old wine desires the new. To have the old wine is to have a preference for it. As far as wine is concerned, yeah, the old is better. As far as wine is concerned, the old is better. The old wine has, it gives a natural contentment. A natural contentment. To prefer new wine over old is contrary to basic nature. That's the picture. And here's the point. The natural man, the natural man with natural reasoning, with the natural mindset, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. The old nature, the old nature with that mindset that is against God, against His Word, doesn't understand. He cannot perceive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. The way of the cross. Why is it? If you're a believer here today, there's nothing more precious than the cross of Christ. That place where he shed his blood. That place where he sacrificed himself, where he took upon himself the transgressions and the sins of his people, took upon himself the chastisement with a view to accomplishing peace and reconciliation for his people. Nothing is the precious blood of Christ. Why is it? Why is it that cross and that blood is so precious to us, but yet to others it's just foolishness? To others it's a stumbling block. Why is it that others don't see the beauty of Christ? Why is it that the world in which we live today is so hostile to grace? And some of the things even that we're hearing said in acceptable circles about the faith that you and I hold very dear 
is contrary. They don't understand. How come? Because we're brighter than they are? Because believers have a better mindset? Ability to think? No, it's a matter of grace, you see. What is it? Why is it? Why is it that if you're a believer that you see Jesus as precious because the Spirit of God has given you a new nature? The Spirit of God has given a new nature that gives a new understanding of spiritual things. That gives a new perception of spiritual things. That gives a new desire for spiritual things. That which is offensive. And that which is repulsive to the natural sight becomes precious to us. So, from the analogy, from the parable. Natural thinking says the old is better. But a new nature says the new is better. With the new nature, with that living spiritual nature, we don't think like once we thought. With that spiritual nature, we don't think like the natural man. And that which at one time was better for us is now set aside. Requires the new nature. Requires the new birth. To be born again. To be born again with that new nature. With spiritual understanding. That's what newness of life is all about. Regeneration is the answer. What's the answer? Christ is the answer, but what's the problem? The problem is not just this issue and that issue and that issue and the other issue. We can legislate whatever we want to legislate, but what is the issue is the heart issue. And unless the heart of man is changed, there's no solution. It's a matter of the heart. It's regeneration. This is why we preach the gospel. What is the biggest issue? What's the biggest issue? I was in a conference not too long ago, and that question was asked, what's... Put your finger on what the major problem is in society today. And critical race, that's our big problem. Abortion, that's our big problem. And, all the, and those are problems, don't misunderstand me. But the biggest problem are not just this issue and that issue and that issue and another. The biggest problem is the problem of sin. The gospel... The gospel will solve the problem. Christ is the answer. Christ is the answer, not just to this and that and the other. Christ is the answer to the real problem, the sin of the heart. And if we can see the gospel transforming man's nature, if we can see the gospel coming into the heart of man, things indeed will be different. What lessons? What lessons here Jesus gives to us in very simple, he was a profound teacher he was, but taking just the stuff of life, taking just the simple stuff of life. Look at this. Look at this. You see that? No. Get the spiritual truth. And I trust that we can see in this living book those same spiritual truths for us. So come and see and taste that the Lord is good.
I don't know your hearts. I don't know where each of you stand individually with the Lord, but here's what Christ requires. A relationship with him, a new life with him. Old things passed away. All things become new. And that's possible. That's possible only because of the new birth, only because there is a new nature which looks at things differently. Different. Christianity is out of sorts with this world. And we're seeing more and more of that today, aren't we? That Christianity is absolutely out of sorts. We're the enemy. Who would have thought? I'm seeing stuff in my relatively short life. I'm seeing stuff today that 20 years ago or 30 years ago I would never have dreamed could occur in our land. But here it is. Here it is. The problem is great. The sin and the hatred. We're the enemy. We're the enemy. Christianity, I, I, I just read something in yesterday that th- this whole thing with the Supreme is because we're forcing Christianity. Well, so be it. But that's the enemy, you see. That's natural thinking. That's natural thinking. But here is spiritual thinking. Set it all aside. Christ indeed is the answer, but let us make sure that we've got the problem identified. It's the heart. It's the heart that is depraved, a heart that is sinful, a heart that by nature is antagonistic to the new life in Christ. Oh, let's pray God. Let's pray God that the gospel will flourish. The light of the gospel will shine forth in our day and make sure Make sure that as we pray for the big thing that we don't miss out on the personal experience as well. Jesus indeed is the answer. Amen. O Lord, thy word speaks so clearly. The demands of the gospel are so simple but yet so far-reaching. Lord, we do desire. We do desire that we would know the presence of Christ with us as we worship together. That we would know and experience the presence of Christ as we do our labors individually, day after day. Let us not be satisfied. Let us not be content that we can go on in life without that consciousness of the presence of Christ with us. And Lord, we pray that this church and every faithful witness of the gospel would be bold in these days to proclaim the only truth and the only way and the only life, Jesus. Hear our prayers for Christ's sake. Amen.
In our closing 